The title of today's message is A Most Unlikely Model, taken from the text we just read. And the first point, the summons. Just to go back to last week, many of you were here. Let me recap for you. Jesus has gone to the temple courts, and he's in the boxing ring, metaphorically speaking. And he's going mano a mano with Team Pharisee, Team Sadducee, and Team Scribe all of whom, in some way or the other, are challenging his authority. Now, if you were there at the time, it'd be hard to miss, I believe, the lively encounters that were taking place between Jesus and these religious leaders of the day. But there's something else that his disciples, that Jesus wants his disciples in particular to see and hear. Something that most likely everyone else had missed, or misinterpreted. We're told in our text, verse 43, that Jesus called. He called. Another way to say that. He summoned his disciples to him. Jesus, in this passage, is huddling his disciples. He's about to give a commentary. His perspective. His evaluation of what is happening right then and now in the temple courts. Last time this happened, he was arriving at the temple courts. What was he doing? Overturning the tables of the money changers. Condemning those who are exploiting God's people and house, a house of prayer. This time, he's about to depart the temple. Not to condemn, but to commend one most unlikely individual. Friends, these moments are precious and priceless. Any occasion we are able to hear Christ's personal commentary on a specific individual or situation should have us in a state of ready alert, ready to take note. Imagine with me if Jesus Christ in the flesh were here this morning. In fact, he was here when the doors were opened at 8 a.m. this morning, walking the hallways, just checking things out, seeing some of the boys, Joel, Stephen, C.J., Brian, setting up, wandering back into the children's ministry, seeing the Millers serving, the Kiroses, Gary and, Beach, Gary and uh, Ashley Beecham and Ashley Halsall, setting up children's ministry worship, David and Melinda back in children's ministry, and Loli serving in the nursery, as he came into the auditorium, just observing the setup, Tyler up here, Joey in the morning, then Zeke, Robbie, and Tiffany back there at the board sitting up for sound. Just taking it all in. And then come 10 o'clock, he sits down. Somewhere right over here. I don't know why. I think he'd be right over here somewhere. Right back in here. Just watching you as you came in this morning. Just observing as we worshiped him in song, as we gave to him in our offering. Then imagine the service concludes. Just guys, gather around. I've been looking around. I want to I wanna show you someone. I want to point someone out to you. Do you think you'd be curious? I think I would. I think we'd also be a little surprised to whom you might be pointing to. I think we would, as evidenced by the text this morning. But we would be on high 
alert. You see, in his word, God has preserved his personal observations and commentary on certain individuals and scenes as object lessons for us. He did it, Christ did it in his life with children he met. He did it with the Gentiles he encountered and even with a widow whom he observed. Those who would ordinarily go unnoticed in Jewish society, those which we would not even notice. It would fly under the radar of our celebrity-obsessed culture. But those who carry the mark are the marks of a true disciple. Church, don't be fooled this morning. This story is not just about financial giving. You may have read it in preparation or just read it for the first time now. Oh, here we go. Message on giving. Oh, man. Bad Sunday to come to Palm Vista. Woo. Let me tell you, this story is about a lot more than just financial giving. This passage is about discipleship, what it means to follow Christ. You see, this text comes at the end of Jesus' long teaching or discourse on discipleship, where he called his followers to himself. Quoting again from Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. I read it. I want to read it again for us. And calling the crowd to him. Here we go again. Jesus summoning and summoning the crowd to him with the disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In Christ's final concluding exhibit or witness of true discipleship, it's not those who the Jewish paparazzi were following in the temple courts. It's not a Sadducee. It's not a Pharisee. It's not a scribe. It's none of the religious celebrities of the day. It's a poor widow. A most unlikely model of true discipleship. Under the radar of men. But not under the radar of God. With this in mind, now let's run through the two vivid pictures or scenes presented in this text. So point two, the scene, starting with the scribes, verses 38 through 40. First, we have the scribes that Christ is addressing in his teaching. Why is he addressing the scribes? Well, if you remember from last week, he had fielded a question from a scribe. That could be why this is placed here in the text. But as well, I think the scribes that we're about to describe, all right, serve as a foil to which Jesus is about to point, which Jesus is about to point out the next scene. A foil to that which he's about to point out, a poor widow. What is a foil? A foil, well, in its noun form, a foil presents a stark contrast. In this case, the foil, excuse me, the scribes serve as a foil, a stark contrast by way of comparison to the poor widow, which we're about to to meet. See, the scribes mentioned here in these verses are those whom we are to be aware of, not to emulate. 
He's speaking about those who are showmen, full of pretense. These are, you could say, the undisciples. All right? Look at verse 38. They walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. They were the religious celebrities of the day. Tell me if this description does it remind you a little bit of our own celebrity culture as well. I want you to think of the Academy Awards, okay? The Oscars, all right? To quote one commentator, the scribes, long robes were, quote, festive garments that were unreasonable for everyday wear. Yeah, sounds familiar. Furthermore, they like greetings in the marketplace. In the marketplaces. That word in the Greek for marketplaces is agora. For those who were with us on our trip to Ephesus, we toured Ephesus, you're familiar with the word agora. It was a city center. It was the place to be seen by all. And when the scribes walked through the marketplace or the agora, people were expected to stand out of respect. Think of the celebrities as they get out of limousines and walk down that red carpet through the gauntlet of photographers and their adoring fans. And just as our celebrities, at least our music artists in particular, are sometimes known by just one name, so these scribes were known by one name. Rabbi, teacher, master, father. In some, the scribes stood out and everyone else stood up. They also had the best seat in the house, not in the Dolby Theater in Hollywood where the Oscars takes place. No, the best seat in the synagogue. Yeah, they were up front on a raised platform so they could see everyone else. So everyone else could see the distinguished persons which they were. And so they could be ready to address the congregation, ready to receive their award. You see, for them, the synagogue, yeah, that was the big screen. That was the big stage, so to speak. They had the place of honor at feasts. A more literal translation reads, they had the first or best couches. They dined in honor and with style. Now look at verse 40. Here's the connection between this scene that Jesus is painting through his teaching and what will follow. Verse 40, speaking of these scribes, who devour widows' houses. Yes, widows. You see, you need to understand the scribes weren't necessarily wealthy or rich. They were forbidden by law to receive their compensation from their interpretation of scripture to receive a salary. They were forbidden. So what did some of them do? They sponged off the hospitality of others. They exploited others' hospitality. And apparently, widows were particularly vulnerable. They would sponge off and exploit the widow's hospitality, until they consumed all that they had. All the while, I'm sure, offering a long prayer for the widows as some sort of pretense. What's the irony here? 
Well, it may appear that the widows represent the most helpless of society. It may appear that the widows in this passage are the most vulnerable. But here's the irony. It wasn't the widows who were the most vulnerable. It was actually the scribes themselves. For we read in conclusion of the section, they, that is the scribes, will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus is speaking about the judgment day on the last day. These celebrities will receive greater, or literally, you could translate this, super abundant or exceedingly abundant judgment. Now, I admit, it's kind of easy to pick on the scribes or the Pharisees, isn't it? So we're going to slow down here. We We may not be celebrities here, None of us are celebrities here. Unless we're celebrities in our own mind. Okay, that's another category and story. We may not walk around in flowing long robes. No. But don't we have celebrities that we follow? Whether it be in the entertainment industry, the sports arena, or even in Christian circles. I mean, we may appreciate these celebrities, right, for their artistry, their mastery, their skills, their good work, or even their great preaching. But isn't there something inside of us that wants to prop them up to celebrity status? Because we want so badly to identify with them, whether it be because of their power, their wealth, their prestige, or their coolness. With that thought in mind, let's go now to verse 41. Jesus has finished addressing the crowds, but he's not yet finished teaching his disciples. There's more he wants them to see. It's not the way of the scribe or the, or the wealthy. It's the way of the widow. That leads to be the widow, the model, verses 41 through 44. Christ wants to show his disciples Now a true picture of a disciple. The one who has no celebrity status at all. In fact, the one who had little to no status in Jewish society. So in verse 41, Jesus takes a seat. It's class time again. But this time, it's going to be a private lesson for the ears of his disciples only. What do we observe in this temple scene? Well, we observe people putting money right into the offering box. Most likely, it wasn't just one box, but it was 13, according to temple literature. And these weren't necessarily box-shaped. These are actually most likely the shape of a shofar or a trumpet. There were 13 of them. It's interesting to note that the verb translated putting money into is actually the verb used to throw, balo, like a ball, throw, throw. It's like suggesting that people come by and throw their coins into the trumpet-shaped chest as they went by. You can imagine hearing the multitude of coins as they rattled around and down into the chests. The wealthier the person was, the louder the noise, the louder the clang, the rattle or the clink which the coins produced. And then there was one, one inconspicuous widow I doubt her two small copper coins made much of a sound at all, except maybe a slight 
hollow cling. So what was that Jesus heard or didn't hear that caught his attention? What was it that he saw? Either way, it was a woman without pretense, without fanfare, and without much notice or sound at all. But oh, Jesus notices her and in fact calls his disciples to himself in this precious, teachable moment. You see, he wants to give them the real scoop, the real commentary on what they and most likely everyone else had just missed. You see, when others' eyes were on the scribes with their flowing robes or on the wealthy who were putting in this vast amount into the offerings, Jesus' eyes were on the widow. What would have sounded like a hollow cling of two coins was a cart full of pure gold being backed up and dumped into God's massive treasure chest. Amazing. Church, don't be mistaken. What this widow gave was only a fraction of a cent. It was less than one cent. Insignificant and nearly worthless to anyone but the widow. Now listen to Christ's verdict, his pronouncement in verse 43.3. That's what we're driving at, the verdict. Truly, by the way, that word truly, amen, yes and amen, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Did you catch that? The widow didn't put in the equivalent of the wealthy person. I mean, the equivalent adjusted for age, gender, marital status, wage disparity. No, she put in more than all those who were contributing. More? Really? More? Everything about this widow screams less. She was the poor, the vulnerable, the least of these. And yet Jesus says she put in more than all these. She gave more than all the rich people's offerings. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with Christ's math skills here, okay? You know, maybe he missed it, that class on addition and subtraction, you know? Christ is using a totally different formula. Here it is, verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So how did the widow give more? By giving everything. See, others gave what they could spare in their abundance. Yet she spared nothing. Her last two small copper coins, her next meal, her last meal as well. What Jesus is measuring is not how much this widow gave. 
But how much remained? Zero. Nothing. Nada. Zip. According to Jesus' formula, here it is. The value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. Let me say it again. The value of the gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. The greater the cost, the greater the amount given. And the cost to this giver, this poor widow, was everything. Others gave what they could spare. But this poor widow spared nothing. And what does Jesus do when he sees this poor widow put in the remainder of all that she has? Does Jesus pity her? Does he say to the disciples, like, what a fool. Does he gather his disciples and say, oh, guys, she needs a financial advisor. She needs an economics 101 class. No, he gives an unqualified commendation to this widow. He points her out as one to be emulated. In essence, a model for his very disciples to follow. More than that, to quote Randy Alcorn, he enshrined her example in the word of God so that future generations might emulate her faith and sacrificial generosity. God preserved the story. Not just summoning his disciples, he's summoning us to emulate such generosity. That's you and me. Oh, I find that stunning. Church, Jesus operates by a different exchange rate, a different formula than the world around us. In God's economy, he doesn't look just, what, just at what we give. No, he looks at what we keep. That's radical. For those of us, and I assume it's most of us, we're on a limited budget. So much of our effort, is it not, spent trying to minimize our costs, right? We want more for less. It's how it works, right? In our economy. So we look at our budget and go, whoa, cell phone charges, gotta cut those costs. So we look at the latest plan, we do our math. We look at our restaurant budget, which is ballooning. We gotta cut costs. We gotta minimize costs. That's good. That's wise. But it's not fine when it comes to discipleship. When it comes to following Christ, Christ is not about minimizing costs. He's not. He's about maximizing the return. And that will cost you everything. Whoa. I mean, that's just not how we're wired. Is it? I mean, some of you, I mean, you'll drive five, ten miles to a gas station outside your neighborhood to save three cents on a gallon of gas. It's the principle, right? Because you want to feel, I've cut costs, right? There's some of you, maybe some of you out there who are what they call extreme couponers, right? I'm talking about you. 
you look at the Sunday paper on the internet, you get all the coupons together, you stack them on top of one another, and you go to the grocery store. And the idea is not just to minimize the cost of a grocery item, you want it for free by applying all these coupons. It's like a sport. And if you're really good, no, no, you don't sell it for free. You want to stack these coupons on one another? So you actually get paid for buying a grocery product. Yeah! So you get everything for nothing. That's how we're wired to minimize the cost, right? Thinking that if we minimize the cost, we're going to maximize the return. That's how we think. It's not how Jesus thinks when it comes to following him. Remember what I said in the beginning. This narrative is a lot more than just about giving. It's about that. I don't want to minimize that. But it's about so much more. It's about discipleship. See, following Christ is not a both-and proposition. It's either or. Disciples can't have both Christ and their own independent lives. It's either Christ or our lives. The claim of Jesus on our life is total and exclusive. Jesus can't be an add-on to our lives. Christ must be everything to us, not just an additional thing to us. If you're here and you're trying to follow Christ without cost, without spending too much of your money, trying to follow Christ without spending too much of your weekends, too much of your evenings, too much of your energy on the things of God and the people of God, his church. Let me tell you, it won't work. If you are trying to follow Christ without giving up those personal dreams that have become like idols in your life, that dream job, that dream relationship, that dream house or neighborhood. It won't work. And neither will this church. A true disciple is not one who gives only what she or he can spare. The leftovers, the extra, after all the bills are paid and the other dreams and desires are fulfilled. No. A true disciple is one who gives what she or he cannot spare. A true disciple is one who gives what she or he cannot spare. I'm speaking about one's money. I'm speaking about, most importantly, one's very life. As mentioned before, this very story, I believe, is a fulfillment of Christ's discipleship discourse. And what it says in Mark 8. I want to read it for the third time. I'm going to put in a few words to make the connection. I'm going to read it again, Mark 8, 35. Whoever would save, i.e. spare, his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, i.e. gives what she cannot spare for my sake, and the gospels will save it. A true disciple does not only give what she can spare. No, a true disciple is one 
who gives what he cannot spare. Church, this is dumb. It's ludicrous. It's foolish in the eyes of the world, but not in God's eyes. It's wisdom. It's life. It's life eternal. How can this be? Fourth point, how can this be? How could a poor widow give away everything? And furthermore, how could Jesus commend those who do? Because of this. Because of what Jesus will do at the cross three chapters later. You see, this is why Christ, in our passage right now, is in Jerusalem in the first place. That's why he's in the temple courts. He has come to give his life away. If we miss the gospel here, Christ's life and Christ's death, the gospel is the good news, what it means for us of Christ's life and death. If we miss the gospel here, we will miss the point. We will either result to a false piety and pretense, a religiosity, or we'll just give up altogether. But here's the gospel-empowering truth which lies behind this entire story. Christ did not spare his life. And God, the Father, did not spare his Son. It's here where the gospel touches our story and our lives. I want you to listen to Romans 8.31. I think I'll put it up there on the screen. I think it's a familiar verse to many of you. I want to read it again with fresh eyes. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Catch that word spare? Did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare his son, his one and only begotten and beloved son. God didn't hold back part of Jesus. God the Father did not send a hologram to earth. He did not send a computerized avatar to earth. He did not send an actor to earth. God sent himself, the second person of the Trinity. God gave up God in the flesh, Jesus, to suffer and die upon a cruel cross, naked and penniless for you and me. He didn't do it so he could claim just a part of you, but because he wants all of you and all of me. It's all or it's nothing. Christ gave his life on the cross so we can give our life in exchange for his fully, completely, irrevocably. But we do so as believers, as Christians, confidently and expectantly, knowing that God will meet all our needs in Christ Jesus, to whom we have been united. Catch the last part of Romans 8, 31. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here's the question. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Thank you. No, this is not a rhetorical question. This is a rhetorical question. Excuse me. If God did spare, did not spare what was most valuable to him, his very self, Jesus incarnate, God incarnate, is there anything which he would not spare for us? No. He will graciously give us all, everything that we need. See, as disciples, we're free. We're free to give ourselves with an absurd generosity and abandonment as we trust God to meet all our needs. We need not worry. We need not fret. We are free. Free not just to give one small copper coin, but free to give both. To give all that we have. But please don't hear. This is a challenge this morning. We hear this. I'm concerned. Please don't hear this sermon as a mere to-do. There are no commands. There are no imperatives, direct commands in this text. This text isn't about proving yourself, okay? This text isn't some moral lesson on the evil of riches and popularity or the piety of poverty. It's not. This story is not meant to be a guilt trip, so you'll go and sell everything, okay, and abandon your family and the responsibilities you have to them in your community. It's not. No, this text is what is true of a disciple by virtue of the gospel. A true disciple is free to give, and a true disciple is free to give it all. To spare nothing because God has given us everything in Christ that we need for life and life eternal. With that in mind, let's drop down further, a little further into your life and mine. This is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meddle a little bit here because I love you and I fear God. For some of you, this sermon may be a warning. In your life, there's a, a false pretense or piety. You may not be walking around in fine linen robes, but when you're honest, there's a sense that you're better. You're better than most. And maybe people around even acknowledge that. I mean, you're good. You're good. You give more. You serve more. And you do more. You do it in service of God and his people. But here's a sobering application from this passage. You may be giving a lot less than you think you are in terms of your money, your time, and your talents. Why? Because you're holding back. You're giving only out of your abundance, out of your surplus, not out of sacrifice. Instead of looking to the gospel of Jesus Christ by which to measure your giving and discipleship, you are looking to others by way of comparison. As long as you feel like you measure up, as you're putting in more coins into that treasure chest than those around you, you feel pretty good about yourself. 
He may not say it, but you kind of assume God's pretty impressed as well. Because I say this because we can fall into this trap. Oh, I can't. So I'm, I'm talking to myself as well here, okay? We're all vulnerable here. Oh, church, may this text, may this passage, may the word of God, may this truth set you free from the delusion and illusion of comparison and free you to look to Jesus, not to others, and to give him your all. Secondly and finally, for others, I I pray this story would be of immense encouragement to you. For some, I I hope it just, it deepens your assurance of salvation. That you're a true disciple. That you've given God your all. I mean, let's face it, yeah. You still sin. At times, you selfishly withhold. I get that. I do that. But you're not just given leftovers. Oh, you have embraced the sacrifice and call of the gospel, knowing in the end that God through Christ will provide all your needs. And you believe that. And you are living that. Many of you have made really really hard choices to follow Christ. You, you have gone without. You know what? You feel it. You feel it daily. You don't just feel it. You feel it for your children as well. You've had to say no to things you once enjoyed. You've had to say no to dreams that you once had. You've had to say no to perhaps things that you once enjoyed as a youth. And it affects not just you, but if you're married, it affects your wife, your spouse. And if you have children, it affects your children as well. You have made choices to follow Christ, to honor him. You've made vocational choices. You've made choices about your schedule how to spend your time as a family, where to spend your money and to give it. And you feel it. I'm being real, I feel it. For me, I feel for my children. I battle that at times. I, I wanted to have all that I had, but I was, I was different. And I see it, they, they don't have maybe some of the extracurricular activities that I had. They don't maybe have some of the financial opportunities that I had because of the choices that we have made to follow Christ. There's a real cost. Oh, but that's you. You are no fool. And you are not to be pitied. But we have counted the cost of following God. May you know God's pleasure this morning for the choices you have made. Perhaps you're here and you feel like you haven't given much materially or financially when you compare yourself to others. Even your service to God seems rather minuscule compared to others. They're more pronounced or public ministry. But you've given what you've got. If that's you, let me just say this. In God's eyes, you have given much, much more you've ever dreamt of. You are no fool in the eyes of God. You are a disciple of Christ. Let's pray.
Worship team, come forward, would you? Dear Lord, this is a jolting message. But our desire is that it would have your intended effect this morning. Oh Lord, convict us where need be. But yes, Lord, encourage us where we need to be encouraged this morning. Oh Lord, have your way. Have your way. There is a reality this morning that all that we taught, all that's been taught, we can just throw up our arms and say, how can it? I, I, how can it be? Oh, Lord, we need your grace. We need your gospel. So Lord, I pray now that your grace would be at work, drawing our hearts to you. And as we'll sing, binding our hearts to you compelling our hearts to follow you to lose our lives that we may experience life in you as you intended it to be. Lord, we want it. We need it. Help us now. Minister to your people, we pray. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing. Come now, found of every blessing.